Hey, this is Dave. I just wanted to let you know that our discussion of Chapter 4, Caliban and the Witch, is going to get broken up into two podcast episodes. In the last couple of weeks, the pandemic coronavirus situation has has made our lives pretty topsy-turvy and also a heck of a lot busier, as we talk about a little bit in the intro to this one. But we're already late getting this one out later than we like to be. And so I'm going to go ahead and publish the first half of our conversation about the Great Witch Hunt, which I have ready to go. And then hopefully in a few days, I'll have the rest of it ready and you'll get it then. All right, well, here we go with part one of chapter four. Welcome back to the Book on Fire podcast. For future reference, today is Wednesday, March 25th, 2020. That's right. We're about a week into self-isolation within the coronavirus pandemic response. Yeah, we're, we're recording this from Western North Carolina where there's still... At this point, very few cases, but we're all bracing ourselves and staying away from each other. Pretty much. Yeah. We live out here far out in the country, and it's not hard for us when we're at home to keep away from most people, but it's been pretty disruptive mm-hmm. anyway, though. Right. Uh, both just like with not being able to see friends and family, but also being able to see clients as herbalists, being able to distribute medicine to people. And also, we've just been trying to get ahead of this thing as healthcare workers trying to figure out what kind of medicine we need to have around, what kind of protocols we need to put in place, um, how to coordinate with other herbalists on the ground, and what to do about our school year that's about to start. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, this uh, time of, time at home is maybe some much-needed rest time and downtime compared to their everyday lives. Uh, for us, we at, might actually be twice as busy somehow. Um, yeah. It feels like a lot. We are herbalists and we're keeping up with herbalists around the country who are already treating people with the virus or people who it looks like they have the virus, but they can't get tested yet. Um, And we're learning a lot. It's just a lot of work to keep up with. And we're supporting various mutual aid groups in the area as they coordinate response too. So there's a lot going on. Things are starting to slow down just a little bit, I think. Yeah. For now, you know, there was a big push to get organized and try and get up to capacity and try and get ready. Um, And now that's still happening. But we're recording this podcast today partially because we got a little bit of a a break. Yeah, that's true. To do it. So um, apologies if this comes out, if this came out a little late. Yeah. uh, If you were like eagerly awaiting. But that's what our lives are like right now. Yeah. And also, um, it's been a little bit since our last episode. A lot's changed. A lot's changed since then. (laughs) And as the listeners have pointed out, my last uh, rant or 
should I say, imperative to embodied in the flesh interaction uh, predated the current public health crisis or at least awareness of the public health crisis. So it's interesting. It feels pretty ironic that we are... That you ended last... That I ended last episode last with that. Last episode by yeah. a call for being together in the flesh yeah. rather than mediated contact when now mediated contact is what we're all turning to Yes, in order to have contact at all. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that we have a lot to talk about today, so I don't want to spend too much time on that irony here. But I think by the time we're done with the book and doing some wrap-up discussion, I think we will have a lot to say about reading this in the current moment and different things that are coming up for us with the, with this content as we move through this health crisis. Yeah. Well, we hope you all have what you need and that you feel well-supported and well-stocked in this time of uncertainty. And meanwhile, in our neck of the woods, the forest is coming alive. Yeah. The forest floor is starting to turn green, and there's birds here that weren't here a week ago. So I feel really grateful that the reemergence of spring <laughs> life is offsetting yes. the gloom that's set over us in other ways. Yeah. And the upside of some of this is that uh, some of you are having time to catch up on the reading or just on the recordings and listening to them. I've ha- had some more time to listen to some podcasts while I've been doing other work right now. And maybe you guys are having some time at home to think about what we're talking about. Anyway, so the episode, the episode, <laughs> so the chapter we're talking about now is kind of the core of the book. It's the great witch hunt in Europe. Here's where we get into the nitty gritty of how the witch hunts actually unfolded and how they were interpreted and what the effects of that was and on the culture around them. Mm-hmm. And Federici has some original proposals for how we should be looking at the function of the witch hunt in Europe in the course of history and in the course of capitalist primitive accumulation. In fact, she that's her main point, is that the scholarship on the witch hunt until the time that she was writing missed what she thinks is this crucial point, which is that the witch hunt was a crucial part of the whole process of early capitalist primitive accumulation that she's been talking about throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And just to throw out a couple like really basic facts here at the very beginning, so when we talk about the great witch hunt in Europe, we're talking about a phenomenon that took place really throughout Europe, mm-hmm. not homogeneously, not equally in every place. And even within a country, it didn't take place equally throughout all the regions of that country, but it had manifestations throughout Europe in Protestant countries and Catholic countries. This is the period that's called early modern Europe. And the time period that the witch hunt takes place in is basically from about 1500 to around 1650. And that's, that's 150 years. And then winding down, you know, definitely by 1700. And the peak of it was in the half century from 1580 to 1630. Okay. And this is the same time period you know, where most of what we've been talking about already in this book is taking place, right? So the early modern period, this couple centuries, is also the time of the witch hunt. Um, And she calls it the witch hunt because it was such a widespread 
phenomenon that was going on all over the place at one time, even though you could also say it in the plural and be like all of the witch hunts that were happening in all these places. In the introduction, Federici starts off the chapter by just talking about how she feels like the witch hunt has been understudied, right? Uh, especially by scholars, and that not many people had given it a very good look. And she was writing in around the turn of the millennium. You know, her book came out in 2004. It, with the privilege of hindsight, we can see that starting in the 1970s, there was an explosion of interest in studying the witch hunt, including and maybe especially among feminists, mm-hmm. uh, but not exclusively. And Federici was basing some of her interest on the witch hunt, you know, on that scholarship. Mm-hmm. And then since she's written her book, there's been even more scholarship on the witch hunt. So what she's saying in the intro of this is maybe not so true anymore. Right. That the witch hunt is kind of something that people haven't wanted to look at. I mean, but we could say that she's correct that the class analysis of the witch hunt and placing it within the proletariat history had been absent and continue- and she is who brought that into the framework. Oh, yeah, definitely. The analysis that she is bringing in here, although she credits some folks for planting the seeds of her analysis, part of the reason why this book is so famous is because she brought a lot of the threads together and incorporated it into a Marxist analysis of the birth of capitalism and primitive mm-hmm. accumulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she has definitely contributed a lot of original theorizing about the witch hunt here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she spends a few pages at the beginning kind of talking about what she found lacking mm-hmm. in the discussion of the witch hunt previous to her book. Yeah, she makes a pretty good case that part of the reason that, I guess, the absence of interest in the witch hunt's in historical analysis had to do with the way that it was immediately reframed to undermine the political context of the situation. Yeah. And she makes a pretty good point that because the Enlightenment was simultaneous with the witch hunts, there was a way that as people embraced this new way of thinking about the world, they identified the witch hunt as part of a superstitious past that people were progressing out of. The society was moving out of the kind of worldview that would make that possible. And the way that historical accounts of the witch hunts proceeded for several centuries tended to see it more as a sort of a craze or a panic and a sort of um, almost like societal hysteria that led to these murders. Right. And that's one way that the phenomenon was interpreted. And another was that... Uh, like the culture yes. just like gone mad. Yes, totally. Or that it was like the last uh, spasm of a superstitious culture. And then on the other hand, you had a body of work that looked at the witch hunts by examining the victims, but not in a very sympathetic way. It was more in a... So why were these women killed anyway? And that especially had anal- had a big stream within the burgeoning field of psychology and psychiatry because they saw some analogs between hysteric women of the 1800s or the Victorian era and the witches. And so various theorists within that realm would talk about, would look back on the witch hunts and say that these must have just been 
uh, women suffering from mental health issues or hysteric outbreaks who were being persecuted as witches. So there's this victim blaming that was happening in one thread of the historical analysis. Yeah, so in contrast to this narrative that says that the witch hunts were just an example of all that was backward and superstitious about the Middle Ages, and that finally the Enlightenment and rationality was going to come and save us from this horrific world where these witch hunts could take place. Federici points out that the thoroughly superstitious Middle Ages had no witch hunts. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a little hitch in the theory. In fact, the yeah. whole concept, in fact, the whole concept of witchcraft in general, the whole kind of idea of witchcraft was only elaborated in the late Middle Ages, I believe, when there was first ever an idea mm-hmm. of the kind of practice that these people would be accused of doing. Not only that, but the time of the great witch hunt was exactly coinciding with the rise of this rationalist and enlightenment thinking, which, as we've already talked about on the podcast, the rise of the rationalist and enlightenment thinking was coinciding with the rise of capitalism. Right. So as this new world is being constructed and violently put into being, you know, the clockwork universe, the mechanistic philosophy, the rationalization of the economy, maximizing exploitation the division of labor, all the things that we've talked about, the witch hunts come along in that period and were actually cheered on by some of the leading Enlightenment thinkers like Thomas Hobbes, Mm -hmm. who, although he didn't believe in the reality of the supernatural aspects of witchcraft, he thought that the witch hunt was a good thing that accused witches were justly punished explicitly because he thought that it would be good for forming the society better into the requirements of work discipline. Right. I mean, he came right out and said that. Right. Uh, So anyway, that's a big hint to where some (laughs) things are going in this chapter already. But yeah, but that's two big pieces of evidence that pretty well sinks the idea that the witch hunt was a medieval phenomenon. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and there's also the um, reframing that happened after the witch hunts, which said that it was a religious phenomenon and that actually it was the church overseeing all of these hunts. Right. Which actually is not true. Um, while the- but it's easy right. to make that assumption. Sure. You know, people would be f- forgiven for making that assumption, right. especially because of the history of the Inquisition. And, mm-hmm. and of course, it was about the devil and all of this stuff. Right. The witch hunts were definitely built upon the foundation laid by the church. They were actually run by the state. It was a secular project that actually was a means of control. And that's yeah. part of what... The church was complicit. Yes. And definitely... The and all church, of the church, not just the Catholic church. The yeah. Protestant church as well. And the Inquisition, which we talked about in the chapter about the heretics, the trials of the Inquisition were were conducted in a way similar to the witch trials would be. And so the church does not have clean hands in this. Oh, no. Not only did the church erect the theological and ideological scaffolding for the witch hunts with this idea of God versus the devil and original sin, original sin and all of that stuff. 
but also the church paved the way for this idea of rooting out evildoers, you know, mm-hmm. by rounding up heretics and burning them at the stake. Right. Yeah, but Federici's point is that it was secular authorities who, especially at the peak of the witch hunt, who were really conducting mm-hmm. and driving this thing. Right. And at some points, the church even intervened to restrain yeah. it somewhat. Mm-hmm. Oh, and she also says that where the Inquisition was still really active, right? Uh, like in Southern Europe and Spain and parts of Italy, mm-hmm. where the Inquisition was mainly targeting Jewish people. Right. Uh, but witch hunting was not a big feature in those places. So anyway, we'll talk more about that later, but the fact that so many of the hunts and the trials were carried out by lay people, mm-hmm. by the secular authorities, is part of the evidence for the argument that the witch hunts were more about a political project right. you know, than about religion gone crazy sure, or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, one of the other myths about the witch hunts, which has been reinforced over and over by historians and in popular culture, is the idea that it was a mass frenzy, a populist movement. And in fact, it was very top down how this was put in place. In fact, secular authorities would move, would take propaganda from town to town with literature. The printing press was used really heavily for this work. Um, And they would say like, the propaganda they would hand out would be like, how do you know who around you is a witch? What to look for? How could you like who sh- who who might be a witch? What does witchcraft entail? What possible signs of witchcraft are around you? And basically introduced paranoia and, and suspicion amongst the population. Taught them what to say to get the tribunal into their town to accuse people, mm-hmm. and gave them weapons to use against each other. Although. Right. Right. We're going to go into what that actually looked like. Right. As terms of who was accusing who in a minute. This was not a ground up phenomenon. This was a top down phenomenon where the secular authorities went around and were like, hey, you know, you're, there's witches all around. And here's how you could maybe figure out who they are. And you just let us know if you think you might see one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they really had to stir it up. The authorities had to go around and stir this up. I was struck by the detail, like you said it too, and so it must have popped out for YouTube, about how some of the earliest uses that the printing press was put to Mm -hmm. was circulating pamphlets pamphlets and inflammatory material for the witch hunt. Yeah. That's amazing. And also, one of the first books to come off of the printing press... Oh, right. Was the famous Malleus Maleficarum, which was the book published in 1486. It translates to The Hammer of the Witches. And it's basically, you know, um, you may have heard about this book already, but it's a treatise on demonology mm-hmm. that tells people where witches are to be found and what to look for and how they were treated. It's extremely misogynist. And that is the book that, I mean, it kind of marks the beginning of the actual witch craze. Right. Because like I said, it was like 1500 to 1650, and that book came out in 1486. And then at the end of this section here, Federici wraps up her argument that the witch hunt was more of a state 
phenomenon <laughs> by finally pointing out that the witch hunt was present equally in Protestant and Catholic places. Because <laughs> this was a time period, you might recall, where the Protestant Reformation was very fresh. Right. And nations and territories and kingdoms were being split up, mm -hmm. you know, all over Europe about whether they were going to go Protestant or stay Catholic. Mm -hmm. And the nations were warring each other over over this kind of thing. And the Holy Roman Empire is splitting up. Yeah. Whether you were Protestant or Catholic meant so much at this time period. A lot of blood was shed. And a lot of blood was shed over mm -hmm. the issue. But what Federici is saying is that even though this was the case... Everybody could agree that a witch hunt was necessary right now. Mm -hmm. You know, so crossing religious boundaries, uh, right. the states were united. And she has this provocative sentence where she says, it's no exaggeration to claim that the witch hunt was the first unifying terrain in the politics of the new European nation states. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. While we're talking about misconceptions about the witch hunts, we should probably address the numbers of, of victims. And this has been a number that has fluctuated a lot in historical accounts. It's kind of a long story to explain where the really exaggerated numbers have come from. But for quite a while, there was a number floating around of 9 million women killed. And that was definitely picked up by suffragettes who were identifying with the witch hunts during their time here in the U.S. And then also 70s second wave feminist threw that number of 9 million around. By the time Federici wrote this, uh, that sort of mythological number had been taken down to, she's saying about 100,000 people were killed, majority women. But most current scholarship at this point in 2020 says that it was the number was closer to 50,000. Um, but actually, like, I think it's important that we don't think that 50,000 is not a lot of people. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, right. I think the exaggeration of the number comes with the exaggeration of feeling, mm -hmm. you know, and it's really important to remember that a few thousand murders destroys community and keeps people terrorized and easy to control. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in lived American history in the Jim Crow South and from the Great Northern Migration that happened afterwards, African-American folks understand that it just takes a couple of murders in your community to make you feel under the boot of systemic violence. Yeah, because it's a terror campaign. Right. It's not so much a absolute extermination down to the last person campaign. Right. It's a terror campaign because the witch burnings were public in a right. lot of places you were required to, to attend watch. them. Yeah. You know? And yeah. So, I mean, feminists have been taken to task for exaggerating the number of women killed in the witch hunts uh, as part of the critique of like the burning times myth and mm -hmm. all of this. And there's a lot to talk about there. But I think our position here at the Book <laughs> on Fire is kind of like, it just doesn't matter that much to the importance of the event that maybe fewer women were killed than some people say were killed for exactly what you're saying right. is because this was a terror campaign that had ripples that mm -hmm. went through the society right um regardless of the actual like arithmetic of the body count mm -hmm. and also i just want to put into that the population of europe was a lot less than right so even that number of people was large Fifty thousand people is a lot of people yeah too 
I do want to say the one time I, the one way I do think that the exaggeration of the number can be abused is in the way that sometimes, whether you call it oppression Olympics or um, who's the most oppressed or violated throughout history, I think that when that accusation towards second wave feminists that they will hold up the witch hunt as analogous to other genocidal campaigns. Right, yes. Then that is wrong. And mm. that when the number is being misused to... Um, draw false equivalents. Right, to draw false equivalents or to yeah. bypass right. actual personal responsibility in yeah. structures of violence, then I do think it's actually important to note that 9 million people were not killed. Yeah, right, right. So now that we've established a lot of the misconceptions and mythologies of the witch hunt that Philip Federici is pushing back against, we want to talk about how she views what actually went down and how that ties into her thesis of this being a political project. Totally. Um, what, yes, we do. Yes, we do. One of the main characteristics that she sees in the witch hunt coming up again and again is the framework of class war. 
because uh, often what you saw, at least in the beginning and up until the very end, actually, of the peak of the witch hunt period, were usually the fact that it was upper class or property owning people who made up the accusers, while the accused tend to be landless peasants, usually women, but not always above the age of 40. So there was this fear of the peasant class or what had become the landless working class that was playing itself out within these tribunals. Yeah, just a quick note on the gender of the accused witches. Federici says that men were more present among the accused towards the beginning Mm -hmm. of the witch hunt, but as it reached its peak, it became even more disproportionately women. Uh, Interesting. Which it was always majority women. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I read recently that one estimate says that like 80% of the victims were women, you know, which is a vast majority for sure, but not exclusive. And the archetypal accused witch would be an older woman, often a widow or a spinster or someone who lived alone and usually very poor. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the archetype. That doesn't account, of course, for all the cases. Um, But yeah, the class, the class war aspect is huge because remember, this is also the time period where the enclosures in the British Isles and other forms of land expropriation were going on at full tilt, you know? Everything that we talked about, not last chapter, but in chapter two, the long chapter two, where we talked about land expropriation, the increase in price of everything, people going to the streets as vagabonds, the poor houses, the work camps, all of this hardship that was imposed on people. This is that time period. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of people were pushed to the edge of being able to provide for themselves and especially women and especially older women uh, because work was being organized around men mm-hmm. and women's fates were increasingly being tied to being attached to a working man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there were a lot of people who were excluded from this relation. Right. And so older women would become frequently accused and the things that they were accused of there's a couple passages in the book. I'm just going to read one of okay. them because I thought that this quote was very illustrative mm-hmm. of the kinds of common type of accusations that are, that were going around. Right. Cause yeah, sometimes when we think about the witch trials, we think of some of the really lurid imagery that comes out of the confessions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's also, it's important to just learn about the petty things. That would often, you know, mm-hmm. give rise to the accusations in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so this section is uh, the charges that were leveled against a woman named Margaret Hackett, an old widow of 65 in England in 1585. So it says she had picked a basket of pears in the neighbor's field without permission. Asked to return them, she flung them down in anger. Since then, no pears would grow in the field. Later... William Goodwin's servant denied her yeast, whereupon his brewing stand dried up. She was struck by a bailiff who had caught her taking wood from the master's ground. The bailiff went mad. A neighbor refused her a horse. All his horses died. Another paid her less for a pair of shoes than she had asked. Later he died. 
a gentleman told his servant to refuse her buttermilk, after which they were unable to make butter or cheese. You can see in all of these examples, this is class war. Right. This is a woman who is having to beg and rely on the generosity of others for what she needs. And she's going around to the houses of people who have servants and the servants are being told not to give her things. Right. You know, or she's just going onto someone else's property and gathering wood there, hoping not to be seen. Right. And then when things go badly for these people, she gets blamed. Right. And that's even if those things are even true. Right. You know, that like the brewing stand actually dried up or that they couldn't make cheese after that or... And I think also she talks about how in many of the cases, the accusations would go back decades. Right. Like you'd be like, well, like 20 years ago, I think she might have cursed me. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like, who's even to say what's real at that point, you know? But what you can see here that I think is really interesting is that um, these are also examples of the fear of the poor that show the class war bubbling up because in a lot of these places there had been this insurrectionary atmosphere there had been peasant uprisings there had been straight up war for quite a while yeah and some of these women are like the survivors of the resistance and the individuals that are being accused of hexing or cursing are symbolic of the the fear of the whole the poor as a whole right you know so uh, feeling unsafe in your luxury or in your relative better offness mm-hmm. you know right and putting that feeling uh that absence of safety onto like specific individuals to blame for that right the rich had a lot to fear mm-hmm. from the lower classes because right. they were more numerous mm-hmm. and they could you know rise up and take everything back potentially mm-hmm. or that was a fear So this is like one of the most obvious ways to read the witch hunt Mm -hmm. is in a time period of increasing social and class divisions when so many people were being left behind and cast aside and pushed out of the emerging economic system Mm -hmm. that the inconvenient, at least, and possibly threatening people who were being ruined by emerging capitalism just needed to be terrorized into being quiet right or possibly just eliminated like gotten rid of like get rid of that woman right so that's one (laughs) so that's one lens Mm -hmm. you know through which to see the witch heart and remember too that the expropriation and the impoverishment and the famine that we talked about in chapter two And just the rise of capitalism in general came with a lot of resistance, Mm -hmm. right? There was a lot of resistance to the enclosures, the peasant wars, and women were often the leaders of these revolts. Mm -hmm. The leaders and figured prominently in the movements to dig up the hedges Mm -hmm. and all other kinds of resistance. Federici theorizes that that's because women were some of the most affected Mm -hmm. by the changes. But either way, they were famously at the front lines of the resistance. Mm-hmm. And so so the witch hunt also it has a greater dimension than just being tired of the old woman who comes by and knocks on your door. Mm-hmm. It also ties into suppressing the resistance, mm-hmm. suppressing the very class of people who were most refusing, right. you know, who were producing the most resistance, mm-hmm. the most grit in the gears of the well-functioning capitalist machine. Right. You know, and it's continuous with 
the persecution of the heretics mm -hmm. in a earlier period, who also had a lot of women leaders who faced trials and execution too. Right. You know? So Federici, she definitely, she draws our attention to these continuities as well. Well, and also there's a large sense that you get from this that the, the war was not just on individuals or movements, but also on the entire worldview that was coming into this period oh yes um and by that i mean that uh the the magical relation with the world the world as an enchanted place where you might have some say over it through performing certain acts or rituals or working with the planets or working with the moon that those kinds of rituals were mixed into everybody's lives they were not just something that the person called witch did right you know um, people tend to have tended to have more of an animist view of the world in general, and magic is and has always been a way to have work with natural forces to have one's will exhibited outside of you. And within the Enlightenment revolution, there was really big pushback against this idea that you could do anything that would cheat work or that you get something quickly or that magic itself seems to be a way, a sort of shortcut that would be mm. manipulating in your environment to make things easier or to like have special powers, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it was very much a part of the enlightenment thinker project to try to eradicate that belief system that there were shortcuts or that there were different forces you could work with, whether they be deities or fairies or spirits that would help you in whatever you were doing. Yeah, that there was a pathway to success other than work. clocking as many hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it didn't fit in very well with capitalism. So there was, it was, it was not just a war on the resistance physically. It was also a war on the mind frame. Mm -hmm. that saw the world as an enchanted place that one could interact with magically. Right. Because you can see how, I mean, we're talking about the witch hunt here. In the last chapter, we were talking about the same thing. Kind of, you know, the, right. the war on magic through the propaganda of these philosophers. Mm -hmm. We were talking about Thomas Hobbes and Rene Descartes and mm -hmm. the whole emerging rationalist worldview that tried to supplant the magical worldview. Mm -hmm. But here, we're talking about the, the same goal being carried out by this other means. Mm -hmm. I mean, and here you can see the, I'm going to call it diabolical, <laughs> machinations of the witch hunt itself, mm -hmm. where it's accomplishing so many things at once. Right. You know, because we were just talking about it's targeting these uppity resistors mm -hmm. and it's an act of class war against the poor. Mm -hmm. But also because the accusations are accusations of magical doings and spells, it's also demonizing magic. Right. At the same time, because that is what is being constructed as a crime. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, you know, and Federici has a couple mentions in here where she talks about how in the early phases, it was only like causing destruction of property or harming others through magic that was a crime, right? Which those things are crimes anyway, mm -hmm. right? Like destroying someone's property, harming somebody, those are already crimes. 
And so doing it through magic, that would also be a crime, right? But then as the witch hunt evolved, just doing magic at all became a crime. Mm -hmm. Even if there was no proof or evidence that someone had fallen ill or that you killed somebody's horse or that soured their milk, you'd soured their milk or whatever. Right. Like even just the accusation of doing magic mm -hmm. itself would be a crime. Right. I think it's really interesting too. And this is something that has given me a lot of thought um, as I've been reading this chapter is what you were elaborating on the magical worldview versus the rational capitalist worldview mm -hmm. and the actual differences between those two universes, you know, the right. ontological differences where in the magical universe, and Federici puts some pretty good language to this, she calls it the anarchic molecular conception of the diffusion of power in the world, mm -hmm. right? And this is that every being and thing in the world has power and are in relationship with one another. And yeah, there might be things that have more, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of those things and you can move through the world in relation with all of these vectors of power and your incantations and little spells and things that you carry and all of these folk magical practices that people had were ways of like navigating this field of molecular power mm -hmm. relations that was immediate and imminent and surrounded you all the time. Mm -hmm. you no. Know? And so that people very much saw their fates in the world as far as whether they would have material wealth or whether they would find love or whether all of these things as being able to be influenced and to a certain extent dependent on how they moved through this molecular field of magical forces and spirits that were around them mm -hmm. and a plurality of spirits and forces that you could work with directly, mm -hmm. you know? And then in opposition to that, capitalism and its handmaiden, enlightenment, rational, mechanistic worldview, its project was to vastly simplify mm -hmm. and massify what could be seen as productive, mm -hmm. you know? So no, actually, all those little spells and things that you do, that's not going to get you anywhere. What gets you somewhere is to plug in to the machine, to this big machine that we're constructing, mm -hmm. you know, where a forest is not a collection of beings and spirits and powers. A forest is a stand of trees that can get chopped up and fed into the machine and turned into furniture. Mm -hmm. Right. It's where instead of, instead of an infinite horizontal field mm -hmm. of powers, it's a overarching very simplified capitalist machine universe mm -hmm. that only has a relatively few ways to plug into. Right. Yeah. But I guess I'd never like stop to think in quite such a way mm -hmm. about the vastly simplified, unsubtle and machine like machinations of what power mm -hmm. and productivity came to be defined as in a capitalist universe. And I don't just mean power over other people. I just mean power to yeah. achieve, to do things, you know, came to be like in a capitalist universe versus in a magical universe where there was like access to power all over the place. Mm -hmm. I think the way that you're describing that kind of makes me think about the distinction between productive and generative. 
And productive means you end up with a product at the end, or there can be something to show for what you did. Oh, yes. I love and that. And generative means more like building power and, right. and building energy. And generative of possibilities. Possibilities. And, yeah. And like a magical way of interacting with the world is more generative. Mm-hmm. You know, there's... Because part of what you're creating is connections mm-hmm. and potential. And opening doors right. to things. Yeah. Right. Right. Not so much like, all right, now we've got 10,000 t-shirts. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So one of the other examples she gives for the ways that the class war seems present in the proceedings is the obsession the inquisitors or I guess the torturers within the state-run tribunals in this case had for this idea of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is kind of an interesting concept in that, um, for one thing, the naming of it itself seems to be tied to anti-Semitic belief systems. And she talks a little bit about this, but that the Sabbath was named that because there was already ideas of occult or diabolical activity happening on the Jewish celebration of their Sabbath. Right. And Well, yeah. And then one thing that I didn't know, too, before I read this book is that she said that sometimes the witch's Sabbath was called the synagogue. Oh, right. Remember that? Right. Yeah. That that was like an equivalent term. Uh-huh. That, right. Like you're going to the synagogue. Right. So there's just anti-Semitism all over this, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, R- right. I mean, which has a different meaning in that context than we think about it mm-hmm. now, which right. is like a building or whatever. Um, the gathering. Yeah, but mm-hmm. was still anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, but in this case, the torturers would tend to want to extract uh, the same confession from most people, <laughs> and often in as lascivious a detail as possible. Of these gatherings where on certain nights the witches would be called together onto a mountaintop or into a field, especially on the full moon, and would consort with the devil. And they would be singing and dancing and feasting. And the feasting part was really big, mm. often a fire. They'd consort with each other, too. Yes, they'd also be consorting with each other. Um, nakedness was often part of it, uh, sometimes sex with animals. But generally... These gatherings were a lot of what was confessed under torture. And as is often the case, um, when when one is being tortured, you give the details that the person wants so that it stops. Right. And so we have many records of these Sabbaths that the accused went to, and they're all remarkably similar. Yeah. Um, But one thing Federici points out is that there was an established tradition of full moon and festival day gatherings and feasting that had been going on within the peasant class for hundreds of years on special days of the year, whether it be midsummer or equinox, full moons, like I said, uh, where people would definitely gather with and feast and gather around the fire. And she talked about these being almost like rebel utopias. Uh, especially once the capitalist order started being put into place because these feast times and celebrations would be a time that there was activity after dark. So that's not during capitalist labor hours. It's non-productive activity, doesn't fit into the machine. It's dark. People are partying. So there's intoxication. 
And also there is, uh, what I, I love it. What she talks about in the dark, it's hard to tell what's mine and thine. So it, there's this idea of <laughs> yeah, the merging right. of the bodies and also possibly maybe some loosening up of social mores. So you're just like hanging with whoever, like loving the one you're with style. There's right. an implication to it around that, like mine and thine, meaning my partner, maybe. Right. You know, right. Consorting outside the boundaries of mm -hmm. the family or of the family union. Yeah. Right. And not having procreative sex, you know, like, right. so these were things that were identified with these feasts and nighttime gatherings that were not necessarily held by witches, but just held by common people. Yeah. Um, in Italy, she talks about how they would be called like going to the dance or going to the game. And that word for those two terms was very similar to the Sabbath there. So right. sometimes the accused under torture would talk about going to the game because that's what their torturers wanted them to talk about. Yeah, right. So there was this conflation with like peasant partying with the Sabbath. Yeah, there's these echoes, I mean, mm -hmm. very strong echoes of just pagan holiday traditions in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the, the accusations of the witches' Sabbath. And so that the ruling class, one can suspect, saw these gatherings as having insurrectionary potential and saw them as gatherings of unruly, intoxicated poor people as a threat. And so increasingly dances and gatherings and feasts were banned within this yeah. time period. Yeah. As we've talked about already. Yeah. Yeah. And so these like frowned upon or banned activities would come up as part of what was diabolical right. potentially about what these accused, usually women, mm -hmm. were doing at night. Right. Yeah. And she even takes this idea further and talks about how people in active resistance mm -hmm. to the enclosures and everything we've been talking about would have clandestine meetings, mm -hmm. often at night, right? often in the woods or on a hilltop. Right. And sometimes these meetings were also, there was a lot of food and they were nefarious in the sense that they were plotting revolts. Mm -hmm. They were plotting strikes. And so, yeah, she brings that up too mm -hmm. as part of what might be kind of hidden behind the image of the witches' Sabbath. That was seen as threatening by the ruling classes. So that's the first part of our discussion of chapter four. We'll be back soon with the remainder of the conversation where we really focus on the question of why women were especially targeted by the witch hunt and the effect of that targeting on women and society in general. So be on the lookout for that. That will be to you as soon as we can get it together. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye.